Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. All right, why don't we get started? Um, I am John Haig. I'm the co-director of the Most of our Romani Center for Business and Government here at Kennedy School. and teach a class of seminars in the general area of business government. I want to welcome you today. Um, we are extremely fortunate uh, we have Bill Jane with us. And I'm going to give you a little bit of his background, and then I'll turn it over to him. Um, we won't hold this first point against him. Um, but he is a graduate of Princeton University, um, 1965. Uh, uh, but um, we're happy to have him here with us, in spite of that. I, I, um, I won't. I won't recall the score of the football game in the autumn of '64 when Princeton was undefeated and untied. But continue. But, no, that wasn't the year when it was a tie game. And no, no. And on, the contrary, on the contrary. On the contrary. So, and then he went to. Um, Cambridge University, where he got his um, doctorate in economics. Uh, he is um, currently senior advisor and managing director of Warburg Pincus, uh, and he joined Warburg in 1988, and he actually was one of the people that really built their IT practice, um, and is incredibly knowledgeable in that area. It was entertaining for me to hear him and John Cullinane meet up. John Cullinane was one of the first founders. He had the first public software company. So, um, and it was kind of an interesting little retrace of some history there that, that, that was uh, very interesting. Um, he's an affiliated member of the faculty at Cambridge University at this point, and he'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, a couple other things to note, um, he's a member, he has a very vast portfolio, it seems to me, of activities. Um, he's a member of the board of directors of the Social Science Research Council, uh, the Field Institute for Research in the Mathematical Science, and the advisory board of the Princeton Bentham Center for Finance. So he's managed to stay engaged with a lot of different fingers and a lot of different pots. Um, he's a co-founder and member of the Board of Governors of something called the Institute for New Economic Thinking, INET. Um, the school and, and Harvard has had a long affiliation with uh, INET. Uh, in fact, in January of 2015, INET helped sponsor um, uh, a patent system workshop that we held here, um, here, here at Harvard. Um, uh, he's the author of Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, Reconfiguring the Three-Player Game Between Market Speculators and the State. Um, and we have three books that we're going to raffle off at the end of uh, the session. So hopefully you got your name in the fishbowl. If not, when we're, we're approaching the end, you can run up and sign your name and put it in the fishbowl. Um, and today we're going to talk about, he's going to talk about doing capitalism, the dark side of the three-player game. And I can't wait to hear what he has to say. So please welcome Bill Daniel. Thank, thank you, John. Um, I'd like to say that I, I, I left the academy on a 35-year sabbatical in time to participate in the building the foundations of the digital revolution and went back to the academy just in time for the global financial crisis to make economics a really interesting subject again. Um, under rational expectations and efficient markets, it was truly boring. But um, so indeed, the subject is the innovation economy, but specifically at the technological frontier. 
where progress is made by trial and error and error and error, where efficiency in the allocation of resources is the enemy of innovation, where the neoclassical production function is an appallingly misleading and dangerous lens through which to understand the dynamics of innovation, and where tolerance of waste is the requisite uh, imperative. And in turn, that means that investing at the frontier depends on sources of funding that are unconcerned with immediate visible economic value to exist. Historically, we can observe, on the one hand, the mission-driven state, whether motivated by national development in the American vernacular, it was manifest destiny in the 19th century, um, or war. And the mission-driven state in particular of most immediate relevance on the subject of much discussion and analysis in the book was responsible for funding all of the upstream discovery and invention of the components from silicon to software to the internet that combined to make the digital revolution. But in addition, and, and, and you can look backwards in history and see similar patterns in the railroad age, in electrification, where collaboration between government and business was central. Um, it's always nice to note that in the United States in the 19th century, we took 9% of the land mass of the lower 48 and gave it to a bunch of corrupt railroad promoters who constructed a national market by building too many transcontinental railroads, none of which made any money, all of which went bankrupt at least once. But out of that came a national market and the largest economy in the world by the end of the 19th century. There is, on the other hand, a second source, financial speculation. So the first law of bubbles is that bubbles are banal. Wherever there are markets and assets, there will be momentum investing, herding behavior, prices decoupled from any plausible connection with prospective or even historic cash flows. The way to think about these bubbles, well, let me come to that in a second, because what I want to, the point is, I, I call this a three-player game between the mission-driven state, financial speculation, and the market economy. And from the railroads through electrification and on to the internet computing revolution, the digital revolution, these two sources of funding, these two uh, Force, economic and financial forces not motivated by a narrow calculus of return on investment have combined to transform the market economy and, in fact, create new economies. Uh, but it's important to note that the analogy or the metaphor of the three-player game is deliberately uh, echoes the three-body problem in physics. There are an infinite number of configurations. None of them is a stable equilibrium. Uh, in a kind of Minskyan model, the longer you're in one configuration, the more certain you are to move to another. And in particular, driving this is that you've got two sets of institutions, the institutions of the market and the institutions of the political process, each of which comes with a more or less legitimate claim to allocate resources, distribute income, which in turn means that those who lose in one domain <coughs> can appeal for red redress to the other, and those who accumulate power in one can exercise it 
in the other. And reciprocal rent-seeking is one of the driving forces of generating shifts in that configuration. So, role of the state, legitimate mission, liberates the state from the shackles of prospective cost-benefit analysis. When the language of war is deployed, whether it's the Cold War, whether it's the hot war of World War II, whether it's the war on cancer, it means that state investments are not going to be measured in a narrow way based on quantifiable costs and benefits. The, not all wars are successful. Not all wars are productive. The war on drugs goes on forever, and we've clearly lost. And there are other examples of that. But if the state is rendered illegitimate as an economic actor, a player critical to providing resources, to driving resources towards projects whose immediate economic value is not visible, is taken out of the game. And one can expect that innovation at the frontier will be the loser. We'll come back to that in the context of the next needed green revolution and the role, if any, of the American state therein. Now, with respect to the other player, financial speculators, bubbles, the persistence, the banal uh, uh, emergence of financial bubbles, as I say, they are banal. They exist in markets from, from uh, tulip bulbs to bitcoins, but they're not all the same. And the way to, to differentiate them is to think in terms of what is the focus of speculation and what is the locus of speculation. Most of the time, as with tulip bulbs, as I would argue with Bitcoin, the focus of speculation is not sets of assets that, when deployed at scale, will materially shift the frontier of production and consumption possibilities. They are not productivity enhancing. Occasionally, however, the canals in the late 18th century, the railroads in the first half and then in the U.S. the second half and around the world of the 19th century, electrification in the first third of the 20th century, and obviously computing in the Internet in the second half of the 20th century, the focus of speculation has the potential to transform the economy if the resources are mobilized at sufficient scale. But the locus of speculation also matters because bubbles always burst. If the speculation is by and large constrained to the public capital markets, the stock market, the junk bond market, as was the case in the late, at the end of the 20th century, when the bubble bursts, the economic consequences are limited. When the speculation infects the banking system, where leverage is orders of magnitude greater than when the bubble bursts, it has the potential, as it did in 2008-09, to freeze the real economy and to have enormously destructive economic consequences with political spillovers that follow. Now, the first edition of this book was a kind of celebration of what you could say was the most constructive configuration of the three-player game that has ever been observed. I had a first-hand education, as talking with John Cullinane, in realizing that 
as I was investing along with peers and competitors, backing entrepreneurs to build the software infrastructure to enable the internet to become a medium for commerce, that I and my peers and the entrepreneurs we were all backing were dancing on a platform that had been constructed by the Department of Defense with a little bit of help from the National Science Foundation. Our colleagues in biotech were dancing on a platform that had been constructed by the National Institutes of Health. This is what really brought home the significance of the mission-driven state upstream investments and support for the deployment of the technologies as transformational networks. And that's why I say you look back at railroads, at electricity grids, and then the Internet, and you can see there's a sort of rhyming of history. And then, of course, we were, perhaps one might say, grotesquely over-rewarded in 19, the last five years of the 20th century when investors discovered that this stuff was actually in the process of creating a new economy. So the, the, the mission-driven state and financial speculators were unwitting collaborators in developing the components of the digital revolution, in deploying the transformational network infrastructure, and in the Darwinian exploration by trial and error and error of what this new economic space was good for. And out of that, by 2000, had already come Google and Amazon. So why a new edition? Well, as a venture capitalist operating at the frontier, I learned the prime directive of venture capital. Corporate happiness is positive cash flow. When a venture generates positive cash flow from operations, it means that its customers are paying more than it costs to deliver them the good or service, which, A, validates that what you're doing is actually economically worthwhile, and B, liberates you from dependence on the haphazard support of external investors. But I look around, the unicorns are burning billions of dollars at premium valuations, positive cash flow is identified as a needless constraint on limitless growth, and at the same time, this new cryptomania takes off to deliver an alternative financial system, not only not underwritten by the state, but explicitly challenging the authority of the state. And the key recognition that led to this, this was, I say, the, um, the new edition revised and extended for the age of Trump and Brexit, was that these were merely two examples of how the digital revolution had matured to the point where not only did it no longer need state support or subsidy, it was challenging the authority of the state and even further attacking the integrity of the political process on which the basis of that authority ultimately rests. So the digital revolution's transformation of the market economy proceeds directly Automation of work, once again, every technological revolution has had an impact on the distribution of employment. It has created winners and losers, and the losers now, as they did not until roughly mid-19th century, have access to a political process to assert their demand for redress, at the micro level, 
the web service platforms, the Ubers and Airbnb, are disrupting not just markets, but the ecosystem, the regulatory, political, cultural ecosystem around markets and are learning the hard way that while they may have eliminated technological frictions, other frictions remain, particularly political and regulatory frictions. But nonetheless, the digital revolution is rolling forward and particularly we've seen it enable two institutional transformations. First, the second great globalization. The first peaked just before World War I, as I dare say you all know from reading and listening to Graham Allison, uh, with enormous uh, destructive contestation. Uh, in that case, steamships, the telegraph, telephone, eliminated frictions in the movement of capital and people. Goods, the movement of goods was still relatively restricted by high degrees of protectionism in the key follower nations, Germany and the United States. This time around, the digital revolution has eliminated frictions not only in capital, but in goods and services, and in particular, in the distribution of work. Well, indeed, immigration remains uh, limited and contested. Nonetheless, outsourcing the ability to construct complex international uh, sharing of supply chains has been direct function of the deployment on global scale of information technology. And further, with respect to financialization, the numbers are in my head because I've just been looking at them. Between 1950 and 1980, the ratio of the total value of financial assets in the United States to GDP rose. It rose all the way from 1.3 times to 1.8 times. Between 1980 and 2007, it rose from 1.8 times to 4.8 times. As in a great book, uh, Donald McKenzie of Edinburgh University demonstrated how information technology, computing, operationalized modern finance theory, made possible going from the Black-Scholes-Merton equation to an infinite array and supply of derivatives and derivatives on derivatives, Buffett's financial weapons of mass destruction. And these instruments that were introduced as increases in market efficiency to enable the allocation of risk, of course, were equally available as instruments for gambling as they were for hedging. And the consequences, of course, was the global financial crisis, where IT complemented the modern finance theory and rational expectations in producing a catastrophe. Now, we're now in a world where we're seeing the consequences of a generation-long exercise in rendering the American state effectively illegitimate as an economic actor across many, many domains. It's, it's all the way back to 1981 when Ronald Reagan in his first inaugural proclaimed that government is not the solution, government is the problem. 
And what we've been seeing over the last few years, and particularly, of course, at least going back to the Tea Party revolution uh, politically in 2010, and certainly through the 2016 election, and also, I would argue, through the Brexit referendum, is the consequences when the state proves incapable of buffering its constituents, substantial portions of its constituency, from the economic consequences of the digital revolution that it itself spawned. Now, I'd be happy in question time to go into a perhaps longer discussion of the role of economics in facilitating, enabling, and actually validating that radical shift in the three-player game, the delegitimization of the state. Um, all I would say in summary, and this is meant to be provocative, is that when I took Economics 101 at Harvard as at Princeton, all economics, like Caesar's Gaul, was divided into three parts. The allocation of resources, the distribution of income, and the stabilization of the economic system as a whole. In the course of a generation, allocation ate economics. With the neoclassical production function demonstrating that the factors of production get their marginal products as their compensation, what could be more fair than that? Labor gets its fair share as through the, the, the mathematics, the mathematical logic of the neoclassical production function, and perhaps even more importantly, the rational expectations hypothesis demonstrated logically that state interventions in the economy would necessarily prove to be ineffective because rational actors optimizing their intertemporal utility, knowing the consequences of their actions and of everyone else because they had a model of how the economy works that is both true and universally shared, eliminated stabilization as a subject for economic study. This came to be embedded in the DSGE models, which unfortunately dealt with a representative rational agent who was her own creditor and debtor, so the financial system was excluded by construction and consequently could have no impact on the real economy over time. Enough said. What I want to, in a sense, summarize, though, is why I call it the, the dark side of the three-player game. First, clearly significant portions of the national government have been captured, been subject to regulatory capture, if you like. We see it going on at the EPA. And it's not just the winners in the market economy. It's some of the, some of the most profound losers, like the coal industry, that have asserted a kind of political influence that has contributed to the forward-looking abdication of the American state as a player in this game. The backward-looking, as I said, is the failure to be able to provide sufficient buffering to, if you like, for those who have know the terms, to implement the second theorem of welfare economics, the winners compensating the losers in order to maintain a fair as well as an efficient equilibrium. Um, because forward-looking, the US has effectively abdicated now from this next green revolution. It's officially 
reject science as a basis for the formulation of policy. Very simple experiment available to each of you where you're sitting right now on your phone. If you type in the letters, the magic letters OSTP to, go to Google, they stand for the Office of Science and Technology Policy. You will find OSTP.gov. That's the current state of the website. But you'll also find OSTP.ObamaArchive. That's the way the website was on January 19, 2017. Contemplate the two and weep as to what's happened to the mobilization, the utilization of science in the formulation of public policy. And the abdication from the Green Revolution means that whatever happens with the trade wars with China, whatever happens with respect to China's assertion of the opportunity and the ability to, if you like, emulate the United States in the 19th century by indeed appropriating all the intellectual property it can get its hands on, using the state as a mercantilist entity, as the U.S. certainly did in the 19th century, uh, in order to get to the frontier, to get to the technological frontier. Whatever happens, right now it appears almost certain that China will be the leader in developing and deploying the technologies in response to climate change, which has been recognized in China as an existential threat to the legitimacy of the state, the pollution and other consequences of the high carbon economy. So the, let, me, let me conclude by saying two things about that. First of all, hard as it is for a nation state to be an effective follower where the path is already laid out. We have, many have tried, very few have succeeded in actually reaching the frontier. We can virtually count them. In the 19th century, the United States and Germany. In the 20th century, Japan and Korea. In special isolated segments, Taiwan and Israel, Taiwan and semiconductor manufacturing, Israel and software. Many have been submerged in the sea of corruption that arises as the state becomes an economic actor and that reciprocal rent-seeking across domains from market to political process becomes available. Duran Asamaglu and Jim Robinson have an exhaustive discussion in their book, Why Nations Fail, as to why nations fail. But they also talk to, and I don't know if they, in my view, fully address satisfactorily, and perhaps even greater challenge, because there's only one example of success so far. And that's going from being an effective follower to being an innovative leader. And here's the problem. The institutions that get you to the frontier, the so-called national champions, become obstacles when you get to the frontier. It's not just the Chai Bowls of Korea and the Zaibatsus of Japan that prove to be incapable of shifting gears from being extremely powerful copyists, capable indeed of improving incrementally process technologies. But as a case study, um, I think, John, you may remember the fifth-generation computer project in Japan, complete and total fiasco. 
with uh, Fujitsu and Hitachi heading off in this direction when the world was moving to distributed computing, which became the basis for the computing of the internet and the digital revolution we're trying to learn to live with today. Um, in the US, not often, this is not a, a well-known fact, AT&T was arguably, well, certainly one of the key institutional forces that brought the United States to the frontier through the first half of the 20th century, delivering universal service of communications technology. But in the, as, as DARPA set about attempting to reduce the concept of packet switch computing, uh, communications versus circuit switch, to reduce that to practice and then to deploy it, AT&T fought that at every level. From the, from the technical working groups to the White House, and stood in the way, if it had been AT&T's way, we certainly would not have been the pioneers of the internet and the first to learn what to do with the internet. So um, let me conclude by an observation that takes me back to personal experience. When John Vogelstein hired me at Warburg Pincus 30 years ago, uh, he said to me then, and he said quite broadly, that you can't survive as a venture capitalist if you're a pessimist. The first time you lose a startup, you'll slit your throat, you'll be out of the game. So temperamentally, I'm doomed to be an optimist. And I do find, in this relatively dismal view of the dark side of the three-player game, I do find one powerful source of optimism, and it goes with the recognition that ideas really matter. It did take 30 years for the Mount Pelerin Society, for Hayek, for Friedman, to redefine the space for public policy, 30 years from, the found, from, from Hayek's writing the uh, Road to Serfdom to Reagan's inaugural address. And for a generation, that conceptual framework has proved to be extraordinarily powerful in the US. Well, the global financial crisis in the world of ideas, and particularly in the ideas in economic and financial ideas, is proving to be the gift that keeps on giving. It has motivated an enormous range of innovative research, heavily empirical, not uh, trying to understand how the world actually works when it worked in a way that theory could not account for. It's mobilized an enormous body, available body, of empirical work, including, of course, behavioral mic uh, uh, microeconomics at the micro level. It's forced, and this is probably the most po single positive thing, it's forced finance and economics back together after the disastrous generation-long divorce, where the finance guys could say, well, we know that the economy is on an equilibrium growth path that is perpetual, only subject to occasional random shocks. And the economists could say, we don't have to worry about what's going on in the financial markets because price equals fair value and the markets will always give us the correct signals for real investment. The breakdown of that, I mean, the collapse of that is one of the great positive environmental conditions which we're now living in. So. My optimistic takeaway is that, as Keynes said, soon or late, ideas not vested interests, we've got a lot of vested interests, 
which are dangerous for good or evil, and the ideas that are now coming out of the academy 10 years after Lehman, I think, are going to prove to be extremely positive in redefining the public policy space. So that's my, my upbeat conclusion to a walk through the dark side of the three-player game. Thank you. Absolutely. Come on, speak up. This is the Kennedy School. Yes. I'm very interested in your comments on the role of um, governments and states in the development and distribution of general purpose technologies, yep. railroads and electrification and so on. And, and when, particularly the, the role of mission driven sort of ideology or policy. Right. I wonder in your experience in research, have you identified good, good missions and bad missions or good and better? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it's a normative question, and I'm trying to be empirical in observing history. Uh, for example, I recently came across a story that I did not know. It's the story of the extraordinarily powerful role of the Royal Army between, during the course of the 18th century through the Napoleonic Wars in driving the reconstruction of the artisanal manufacturing economy of Britain before the Industrial Revolution and into the Industrial Revolution. The British Army, well, from 1688 to 1815, in that span, Britain was at war 87 of those years. 87 out of 123, two-thirds of the time. At the start of the 18th century, it needed order of magnitude 10,000 muskets a year. In 1815, it needed 2 million. Now, there was no, the, 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 the technological revolution of interchangeable parts and mass production, that came from the U.S. armories. That came from Springfield, Massachusetts, and Harpers Ferry, West Virginia in the 1820s. But what the Royal Army did was force a radical reconstruction of the artisanal economy of Birmingham, so that Birmingham became the workshop of the Industrial Revolution when the U.S. inventions spilled over and mass production and interchangeable parts were applied successively to uh, uh, machine tools, the manufacture of machine tools, the manufacture of rifles, the manufacture of sewing machines, typewriters, bicycles, automobiles. All of that came out of the role of the state as an early collaborative supportive customer for technology, pulling it down a learning curve to reliable low-cost manufacturing. Now, with respect to um, missions that are evidently unproductive, I cited the war on drugs, uh, the use of the language war, I think, historically is, is neutral with respect to the mission, what it means is we're, we're suspending cost-benefit analysis. The mission legitimizes the activity, and what matters is effectiveness, not efficiency. The, you can think of all sorts of occasions when missions have been positively destructive, and you know, it, I, the final solution. But uh, 
what I mean is here is the way in which, and this gets back to trying to get around and through the the um, uh, neoclassical production function, where you know the where efficiency is the virtue of the economic process, to understand how limiting and how misleading that is as a framework in which to understand the economics of innovation at the frontier. For followers, where you know the path of certainly efficiency and reducing in particular the corruption tax or limiting the corruption tax is critically important. Yes, John. So I lived through at AT and T. I was at AT and T for about ten years, and I tried to facilitate a shift from an analog network structure to data, um, and saw the difficulty of doing that. And I think you're exactly right that companies get into a position of, of if you will, dominance or market leadership or whatever you want to call it, and then they're incapable of making the changes yep. that are necessary. Uh, uh, based on these technologies. And if you look at the you know, Fortune 100 over decades, rarely is a company able to stay yeah. in the Fortune 100, and it's usually because they can't make the change or adapt as the technology comes along. And the question is really, what do you think the role of the government is, or what could it be to kind of facilitate processes of adaptation, the Yep. the implementation of new technology um, and breaking down some of those impediments because it's a natural instinct one, I think people it's hard for them to do something differently than they've done it the day before oh, yeah. and so it's not necessarily malevolent, malevolent. Um, the second part of it though is um, they've got a good situation they're making a lot of well, that's a, this is crucial and, and, and it's, it's very yep. hard for yep. them well, I think there are, there, are, there are different patterns here, but the one I'm going to start with, the one that you just touched on. Uh, and, and frankly, this is, to me, has, in my own experience, from roughly 1980 through 2000, uh, this that's really left out of Clayton Christensen's great work on the innovator's dilemma, the challenge of setting out deliberately with malice aforethought to attack an extremely positive cash flow on the part of an incumbent is, is extraordinarily important. And I'll give you a set of examples. Um, around 1980, I got my real deep immersion education in computing, courtesy of friends at Xerox Park, particularly John Seeley Brown, before he became director. Um, Xerox Park was generating as I think is very well known, uh, all sorts of innovations, not just the, the user interface and the mouse that Steve Jobs famously was allowed to see and knew what to do with, um, but also the Ethernet networking technology, the printing technology that became Adobe. And time after time, the young entrepreneurs from the park would put together a business plan, take it to Stanford, where the green eye shades would look at it, and say, okay, you want 20 million bucks, and in five years you're going to give us, you know, 100 million of revenues, and you'll be breaking even. And that's with a lot of uncertainty about whether the market's there, the competition, et cetera, et cetera. We can take that 20 million bucks, and we can hire 
X number of salesmen and field engineers, and we know that we're going to generate a 2X return on that money within 24 months, so go home and get out of my office. And of course, they didn't go home. They went off and found some venture backing and started companies like 3Com and Adobe. And um, eventually, Xerox worked out that it might be able to take a 20% interest in those startups and get a return on the research that it had funded, but it could never do it on its own. Um, in the case of IBM, of course, the most important fact of my professional life was that IBM refused for a critical five years to attack the profitability of Kicks, um, and uh, which was their the mainframe application platform technology that at BEA we attacked directly and successfully. But there's another story that's a really lovely little case study. Um, forgotten in the midst of time, in the 19 late 70s to early 80s, IBM uh, set out to try to replicate the incredible world-transforming experience of having invented System 360, the first integrated family of standard computers that took over the world and made commercial computing a reality in the 1960s into the 70s. It was called Future Systems, and it was going to revolution every, revolutionize everything from the silicon to the infrastructure, the operating system level software, to the complete packaged machine. It was a failure. Uh, and IBM kind of lost its nerve. And I'll add one more factor to that in a minute. But out of it came, actually, the single most successful computer ever introduced to the marketplace. It was called the AS400. And at its peak, which was only three years after it was launched, it was generating $14 billion of revenue and $10 billion of free cash flow. This is vintage 1990-91. A brilliant young engineer at IBM's Austin operations named Andy Heller saw that outside of the IBM universe, there was a company called Sun Microsystems. There was another company called Silicon Graphics. These were the core machines of the new distributed computing revolution outside of the IBM mainframe center. And they were starting to take real markets. They were starting to be used for real business purposes, not at the headquarters level, but at the regional, local office, manufacturing plant level. So Andy came up with the Sun Killer, is what it was called, the RS6000. And again, he went to Armonk, not Stanford, with his business plan that said that in five years he was going to have $300 million in revenue and a 30% operating margin. And what he didn't know was that it was a complete setup. They had the team from Rochester, Minnesota with the AS400 that had just generated the numbers I gave you in the audience. So when Andy realized what had happened, he was a bit of a, bit of a wild man. He, um, he took his Harley, which he'd ridden from the, from the motel to headquarters, he took it into the lobby. He left it with the engine running and his IBM credentials hanging from the handlebars and went home to Austin and became a venture capitalist. <laughs> uh, government action in the face of this, and there are other examples of companies that are so successful they can't afford to innovate. Uh, antitrust. We have two great examples. 
First, AT&T. The Holmdel settlement, 1956. The Justice Department came at IBM over its both its, its double, its, its horizontal monopoly and its vertical monopoly. The horizontal monopoly was the monopoly provider of long-distance telephone services in the U.S. The vertical monopoly was the integration from the hardware, Western Electric, through the operating companies. Um, and they said to IBM, they, the deal was, the settlement was, IBM could maintain its monopoly and hold on to Western Electric. But all technologies developed at Bell Labs that were not exclusively used for communications had to be licensed on a fair and non-discriminatory basis to the world. So the world got the Idea Factory as a, as a public good resource. Then, of course, the Justice Department came back. Now, John, were you there in 1982? No, no, no. I was there much later, 1996. Okay. Well, the story I have, and I hesitated to tell you this if you'd been there at the time. The story I have was from somebody who was very, very high up at, at Bell Labs, who was, when, when, in 1982, AT&T agreed to be broken up. And it kept Western Electric, but it gave up the local Bell operating companies, divestiture. And in return, it was liberated to take the Bell Labs technology and go directly into the computer business. And the mission, of course, was to attack IBM. And a guy called Archie McGill, who was a brilliant marketeer, was named head of what was called ATIS, AT&T Information Systems. If you know your, your uh, Egyptian mythology, that's not necessarily a really promising, promising name for a company. Um, but in any case, at um, uh, uh, there was this grand presentation of the Addis business plan for the senior management of the company, led by Charlie Brown, the chairman who had negotiated divestiture. And the story is that there was this you know, state-of-the-art 1983 multimedia presentation on the strategy that Addis was going to take to the market and win leadership in commercial computing. And then there's dead silence. Everybody looks at... Charlie Brown, at the CEO, how's he going to respond? The story I'm told is that he turned to his immediate staff and said in a voice that you could hear all the way to Basking Ridge, oh my God, we just gave away the wrong half of this goddamn company. <laughs> but there was another antitrust story, and that is IBM. Because IBM was um, uh, played as if it were run by Bill Gates for a while, and in the uh, 60s, they attacked a, you know, a kind of uh, a maverick, but relatively minor computer company called Control Data. Control Data was, a pro was important because Control Data pioneered a new architecture for computing that was, that was optimized for uh, mathematical computing, vector processing, to be able to, to, to manage to, to compute on very large arrays of numbers very, very quickly. And IBM did all sorts of nasty, dirty things, and, and, they, and they were caught out. The Justice Department nailed them. They came at them, and IBM preemptively, in the late 60s, unbundled software, created Cullinan, created the independent software industry. Previously, software was sold with the machine. It was written specifically to the unique 
architecture and instruction set of the, pro of the, of the processor that was different for every computer company. IBM had three versions of its core computers. But it was the Justice Department's assault that induced IBM to create what arguably became the single most important technology market that the world has ever seen. And you know, you don't have to agree all the way with Mark Andreessen on everything, but you know, software's been eating the world at a pretty fast clip uh, over the last 50 years, and it began with an F. So taking, you know, re-mobilizing antitrust, not exclusively as came to be the case through the law and economics revolution, uh, exclusively focused on the interaction between the producer vendor and the customer, but also on the competitive conditions of the markets could play a really important role, particularly as we think about trying to come to grips with uh, the new digital giants. You know, when, 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 when um, uh, Google buy YouTube, Facebook could buy WhatsApp, it went for billions of dollars of shares and eliminate any competitive threat upstream from that actually emerging in the market, that's troubling. So just sorry to, I know others have questions, but real quickly, but a follow up. So that's a natural question. So IBM kind of struggling, AT&T kind of was struggling, um, and the antitrust pushed them to in certain directions. <laughs> but did, if you think about the tech giants today, you know, you painted a picture where the antitrust actions help free up certain activities in the market and kind of energize yep. the market. So what would be your take on how uh, antitrust should be applied to the tech giants? Well, first of all, I think, and you know, there's this now quite famous article by Lena Khan in the Yale Law Review on thinking of uh, antitrust in the age of Amazon. Uh, first, I think that actually scrutinizing acquisitions uh, of actual or potential competitors, which was just off the table for the last X number of years, um, going back and looking at the you know the the Microsoft litigation when it set about putting Netscape out of business, uh, the ability to of a, of a highly profitable incumbent to use uh, free as a competitive alternative against upstarts. I mean, all of that is. I, I think just getting it back on the agenda would be would be useful. Um, I do think, and this is a harder one. Uh, what we've seen emerge really, really just in the last five years, um, what we've seen emerge is a new fourth source of organic, not through acquisition, of organic uh, monopolizing power. Historically, we've had economies of scale, economies of scope. Chandler wrote the book, uh, wrote two books, um, and then network externalities, network effects. But we now got a new one, and data is not the same thing as network effects. When AT&T was enormously empowered by the network effects of you know, everybody needing to be on the same telephone network, AT&T wasn't generating how those telephones were being used and improving the service as a consequence. Whereas the point about the data giants is that every transaction, every interaction, generates data, which in turn is cap captured, which in turn can feed the machine learning 
algorithms, which in turn can improve the algorithms, improve the quality of service, and thereby generate more data. It's a positive feedback loop, and I don't know if conceptually it has a limit. Thinking about that as a source of market power, all we know, and particularly from the work of David Autor at the other end of New Cambridge, uh, we do know that as you look across, and this has been duplicated by OECD across the developed world, increase in market concentration in every four-digit industry, increase in market, uh, market concentration accompanied by increase in reported profit margins, accompanied by reduction in labor share uh, that feeds into the uh, inequality below the 1%. Uh, all of these are phenomena of the digital economy, and they will generate political responses, coherent or, as we have today, utterly incoherent, enraged responses, but they will generate political responses. Sir. So the um, recent developments have, uh, have caused the requirement for the new edition. I, like to know just how different are the recent requirements. Let me let me try for the sake of argument to give you uh, to argue that it is very different. Um, let's say we take something like uh, blockchain, right, which is totally anti-governmental, certainly non-governmental. It's not. It has not been built on any investment by the government at all. And you could imagine proofs in the pudding. Right? You could certainly imagine that this could go everywhere in the economy. This is a huge thing. So that from now on, it's conceivable to have these big innovations without the government at all. Uh, first of all, the proof is indeed in the pudding. Yes. Uh, and I think, as every, everybody now agrees, that we have to differentiate between the infrastructure technology on the one hand and the applications on the other. Uh, with respect to the infrastructure, the Navy's been running distributed database quasi-distributed ledger technology for a generation. Every ship knows where every other ship is and it's updated in real time and it can't be, you can't go in and, 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 and fake it. Um, with respect to the applications, as my friend at Brown, Mark Blythe, says, if you, have to ask, if you have to ask if it's money, it's not money. And I think the, the crypto currency, the, you know, the cryptomania over the Bitcoin-like currencies um, is exposed to lack of real-world market use of these elements. It's exposed to the, yeah. in my view, the absurd. So the crypto, but the, the blockchain well, the blockchain, and that's what I'm coming to. Uh, first of all, the, the experiments that seem most that are going on, that appear to be most promising for actual use cases, happen to be taking place between the actors who are the exact opposite of whom the blockchain was invented for. Big banks, highly regulated, known to each other, operating in permissioned environments. Second, and this is one I came on when I was contemplating the work of the last Nobel Prize but two in economics, Oliver Hart. Um, Hart got the Nobel for demonstrating uh, logically uh, what we know intuitively, no contract can be complete. And the world in which the second law of thermodynamics works and time moves in only one direction, it is impossible to provide by contract for every imaginable, for every contingency, because they're not all imaginable, let alone 
subject to having probabilistic evaluations of them. So one of the supposed features of the blockchain is non-repudiation. You implement a smart contract in the blockchain, and it is going to execute, no matter what the context is or how the context has changed from when the contract was initially entered into. Sounds to me like a recipe for catastrophe. The point about contracts today, and of course this is the most litigious country in the world, is that when you know the context has changed, the two parties can get together and say, wait a second, that's not what we meant. Let's renegotiate the contract. But if you can't renegotiate the contract until after it's executed, you've got a mess. So I think that non-repudiation is actually a, a bug, not a feature of the distributed ledger technology. I think there will be, there is clearly substantial ongoing investment by creative people. And by the way, I don't rule out the role of, of the state in this at all. I mean, you've got the Bank of England is, is deeply involved in all the experiments, far ahead of the Fed as far as I know uh, right now. Um, but whether this comes to revolutionize the economy and liberate innovation from requiring state investments and missions, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. I do think that, for example, right now, what I, is, is really troubling. We've got a set of um, what uh, Tom Hughes and his great networks of power talked about as the reverse salience, things that are slowing things down. We know that wind and solar are now at better than grid equivalent, particularly cheaper on a megawatt per hour basis than coal, but deploying renewables at global national scale, let alone global scale, at even regional scale, requires storage technology we do not have to enable the network to handle intermittent sources of energy. Where is the massive upstream investment in alternative storage technologies? Every university has a lab that's working on batteries. Every university does. But who's the customer to pull those new novel innovations like silicon processing vintage 1955 down the learning curve to low-cost reliable? It's happening in China. It's not happening here. That's what worries me. Yeah. And that's the government. Yeah. But, okay, so the, re the reverse salience you, in just the blockchain, you could argue that governance of the blockchain is the reverse salient. That Actually, I think performance is. Performance is. But I don't want to argue that blockchain is the, the invention. Yeah. Is it possible to think of big-scale innovation that does not start with the government? Well, here's the problem. I, I was out at X the other day. We're now supposed to call it X, not Google X, um, for the uh, Saifu conference um, this summer. And um, this is supposed to be the Bell Labs of Alphabet. You sit down with the guys and say, so what's your time horizon? And the answer you get, and I was, I was really surprised. I was absolutely stunned. The answer was, well, you know, we're not really supposed to work on anything that isn't going to deliver something of value to the company within three years. Yeah. And that's Google. That's they got all the money in the world. They're not, nobody's going to get the Nobel Prize in a real subject like physics for discovering the background cosmic radiation at X. Yeah. So your answer is no. Yeah. I actually would even take that further. I think one of the real problems, I talk about this at length in the book, um, the phenomenon that we observe of short-termism in the private sector, I think this has deep institutional roots. It begins with the institutionalization of the stock market. 
It begins with the fact that 70% of the money in the market is either formally committed by contract to index investing or is quasi-indexing, forced to act as if they were index investing, because if you ever fall behind the index, the money gets taken away and you're out of the market, so you have to play the game. Because of, I have to say it, the um, extraordinarily, in my view, destructive contribution a generation ago of Michael Jensen in taking what we called Silicon Valley socialism, the granting of lottery tickets to induce people to leave safe employment at Hewlett-Packard in order to join some crazy-ass startup that had an 80% chance of failing, and taking this to eliminate the agency problem between management and ownership and endowing multi-billion dollar companies' leadership with stock options, and then taking that over to institutions, most of whose liabilities were guaranteed by the taxpayer, uh, I think this is what it does. It, it has meant management is incentivized to behave the way the stockholders want them to, and the stockholders want them to be very short-term. Hence the flow into buybacks, the $5 trillion over the last five years used to buy back stock. Sir, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. First, I think you had your hand up first, and then we'll go behind you. Yes. And people are talking more about the next one, mm. when and how. The IMF says there are concerns, but not alarming. Yeah. And obviously, Jimmy Dedman and Ridalio have very different views on that. Yep. Well, is there going to be another financial crisis? Yeah, but um, first, going back to the consequences of Lehman, um, I, I think that we had we, – the, the response has been partially effective. Banks are better capitalized. Now, they were so uncapitalized in 2007 beyond what's in the official statistics. I mean, one of the dirty secrets is that under the old Basel rules, when the bank said it had 35 to 1 leverage, which meant 3% decline in its assets and it was insolvent, it actually was more like probably 135 because you were allowed, the banks were allowed to use goodwill, uh, acquisition goodwill as equity. They were allowed to use their own models to risk adjust their assets. So making banking less profitable is a really positive step. And banking is less profitable, roughly 15% reduction, a uh, 50% reduction in the return on equity for the major banks. That's a positive step. Pushing it out into the shadow banking system, I think the Fed has a reasonable view. I do think that the, you know, that conference that just took place with Bernanke and Geithner, you know, I said you've taken away some of the critical instruments we had for protecting the system. But I think there's another factor, and this was the, the, the opportunity that was lost in the years, not 2008-9, but 2008 11, 12. And that was a radical shift in the retrospective response to bad behavior, to illegal behavior. Once upon a time, people were sent to jail. In the aftermath of the SNL crisis of the 1980s, hundreds of people, bankers, 
and affiliates went to jail. In the aftermath of the great internet bubble, Jeff Skilling just got out of jail 10 years later. That's Enron. Bernie Ebers, the CEO of WorldCom, is still in jail for what he presided over. In this case, not one senior executive of any financial institution, including even Mozilla of Countrywide, was, was subject to indictment. And I think that that has probably more to do with the propensity for, and, and by the way, substituting for that has been billion, multi-billion dollar settlements with the banks paid for by their stockholders with no comeback to the individuals who actually presided over, even if they didn't make the explicit bad decisions. And I think that was a very, very bad mistake. And we'll pay for it. As a follow-on to your point about the options, uh, what's your take on the uh, decline in new issues and, uh, and, and the actual strength of companies listed? Yeah, but those, and, and just for everybody, um, the number of public companies in the U.S. is 50% of the number in 2000. Um, the number of IPOs has been running at about a third, the, well, venture-backed IPOs, has been running about a third of the number of the average between 1980 and 2000. Um, first, uh, with respect to the latter, there's an institutional factor, the, which has been left out of, I have not seen any academic literature on this, and I, I've been begging people to address it. Um, the radical concentration of the investment banking industry the whole ecosystem of intermediaries, the Hambrecht and Quist, Robertson Stevens, Rothschild, Underberg, Tobin, Alex Brown, all these guys, they're not stupid. During the bubble, they all sold themselves to the big banks for big bucks. Tom Siebel at Montgomery Securities actually sold himself three times. Um, and big banks, of course, knew nothing but to do with these. As soon as the bubble was over, they closed them down. But that means that if you're going to attract the attention of a major bank, you've got to be offering a $5 million-plus payday. When you run the numbers, it means the IPO has to be at least $200 million, which means, in turn, that either you have a bubble valuation and, like SNAP, you're subject to what happens when you get mark-to-market, um, and it's not just, you know, notional. Um, but very few companies, very few startups actually get to that level. There has been a, more ge a generalization of what we think of as kind of the biotech model, Lots of innovation in the startups. The ones that seem to be doing something useful get acquired by big pharma. That's not a crazy model. It's what my friends at Duke, Ashish Arora and Wes Cohen called the, uh, the uh, uh, division of innovative labor. It's not crazy. It puts the onus on the acquirer to be able to absorb innovation from the outside uh, unlike, for example, IBM that was notorious for killing whatever it acquired by putting it under the corporate you know, rules and regs that evolved over 100 years. Um, that's not crazy, but it is kind of symptomatic of what is often referred to as the loss of dynamism in the American economy. Is it contributing to oligopolism? Yeah, sure, sure. And, and, and as I say, going back to the antitrust, you know, when, when WhatsApp, on its way to becoming a material potential threat to the existing digital web service providers, uh, is bought up before it can become a, a, a real threat, that obviously both reduces dynamism and increases concentration.
Okay. I think we just about hit the number. Almost exactly on time. Thank you all for coming, and thank you, Bill. We're going to do the, uh, the yes, the drawing. Here. So get your name and if you have